going to open our Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, and uh, we have a lot to cover here this morning in kind of a short amount of time, and um, the subject matter they're going to be looking at today is, is fairly large. In fact, uh, if we wanted to, I can sort of spread it out over several weeks. Uh, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to try to be as concise as I can, and uh, hopefully it's something that would speak to you guys. Actually, to be quite frank with you, the past two weeks have been pretty tough. Uh, the subject matter that we've covered last week, if you were here last week, we looked at the subject of hell. Um, it's always a big tough uh, subject matter to cover. This week, we're going to be taking a look at the subject of divorce and remarriage. We know that this is a very big subject and topic within our culture, a lot of problems surrounding it, and so on and so forth, a lot of discussion, a lot of debate. Um, some of you just immediately checked out because like, I ain't married. Um, check back in. Um, I'll tell you why. Because statistically, at some point, you are going to be that person. You're going to be married, um, typically throughout the rest of the school year. Um, the very large majority of our church is unmarried. Um, between eight, ages 18 to 35 is sort of the demographic of our church. And when school's in, the overwhelming majority of those people obviously are unmarried. So this time of year, around summertime, the uh, statistics here kind of vary a little bit. But we have a lot more married people. So some of you here right now uh, that aren't married, um, like I said, Pay attention because at some point this will apply to you and the subject matter really at the end of the day what Jesus is going to be dealing with all applies to all of us whether you're married, divorced, uh, wanting to be married or um, are in a marriage right now that's a little bit tough right now. So um, just listen to what Jesus has to say and uh, what I want to do this morning is I want to read the passage that we'll be taking a look at and I'm going to make some very quick um, comments at the beginning in terms of preface and then we're going to get to work taking a look at the subject matter that Jesus is going to be talking about with regard to divorce. Uh, but one of the things that we'll find with Jesus is that he's going to be putting his finger upon the real issue of divorce. He's going to describe it as hardness of heart. So the real problem that Jesus will underlie, that Jesus will get to, uh, is something that's far more pernicious, something that's far more relevant, something that all of us uh, at some point in our life have either encountered or one day you will encounter it. And uh, we do well to listen to what Jesus has to say. He designed us. He designed us. He created us. He made us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And hardness of heart may not be something that we would ever want to diagnose ourselves with. So we would do well to listen to Jesus, to listen to what Jesus has to say about the subject matter that we're going to be taking a look at. And if any of it applies to us, to allow God to do the work that God desires to do in our lives to transform us. So I'm going to read the passage. Then we're going to pray. We'll get to work. Uh, we'll start at around chapter 10, verse 1, as we've been taking the Gospel of Mark and going through it, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Uh, this is, as a side note, one of the benefits, I would say, of teaching through just the, the Bible like this, teaching through books in the Bible like this, is uh, uh, you, you can't just, like, not teach this, right? If it, you, you guys are so good. Like, if you guys came to church one week and you're like, wait a minute, we skipped the first 12 verses, you guys would call me on it. You're like, what happened, Pastor Brian? Like, why did you, you skip over the passage on divorce? Like, ah, uh, it's not relevant. You know what I'm saying? When you just go through the book of the Bible, you have to deal with it. Even if you are uncomfortable with dealing with it, even though it might be something that's not very popular or common or we don't want to deal with it, we have to deal with it. So that's why my week's been pretty tough. All right. So with that, let's read. We'll get to work. See what Jesus has to say. Verse 1, it says this, And then he left there, and he went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan and the crowds gathered to him again and again, as was his custom. He taught them. The Pharisees then came up in order to test him, and they said, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he said to them, What did Moses command you? And then they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And then Jesus said to them, It was because of the hardness of your heart that he wrote to you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made the male and female. Therefore, man, and man, man shall leave his father and mother, and behold... Uh, uh, and hold fast to his wife. In verse 8, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So, God, we ask you right now that you just help us, help me, God, to clearly communicate this subject. It's huge. It's big. In so many ways, it's complicated in this culture. Uh, it's one of those things that we wish that there was just an easy fix. There is no easy fix because it involves a heart. It's not just simply the dissolving of a contract. 
It's oftentimes the shattering of a heart. And so, God, we realize that this is something we just need your wisdom, your ability, your help, your spirit to move and lead and guide us here in this place. So, God, help us, we pray. Commit this time in your hands. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Um, I want to start by basically saying that all the way along throughout this great book is that Mark has been urging us to ask this bigger question. The bigger question that Mark wants us to keep wrestling with is uh, two things, really, I could say. One, who is the king? Like, who is the king, the true king? Obviously, Herod can't be the king. Obviously, Caesar can't be the king. Who's the real king? Who's the real king that's going to come into the chaos of this world, into the chaos of society and the chaos of culture and even the chaos of my heart and bring some sort of peace, some sort of order out of the chaos in our lives? Who will be the one that will come? Well, Mark starts the entire gospel off by saying this is the story of Jesus, the Christ. And we've been saying from the very beginning, anytime you see that word Christ, it's always synonymous with the term uh, king. And so Mark, from the very beginning, identifies for us the fact that Jesus is king. So the bigger question is this. What will it be like when God becomes king? What will it look like? What will the world look like? What will people's lives look like? What will circumstances be like? What will people's hearts be like? What will society be like? What will culture be like? What will everything, the cosmos, the universe, what will all things be like? Now, we can talk about the coming of God's kingdom, coming of God, God's, when we just say God's kingdom, all we're simply saying is the domain, the realm of the king. Uh, we speak of God's kingdom as being both uh, here, current, but also present, or I'd say here, present, but also future, meaning there's a sense in which God's kingdom is going to come in its fullness. It's one of the reasons why in this life, because some of you might not be convinced of the fact that God's king right now. You're like, God's king? People are still dying. God's king? Um, people are still getting divorced. God's king? People are still dying from starvation. God's king? A lot of people in this world still. And you have a good argument for that. But the reality is, if you understand what the Bible's teaching, is that there's a sense in which God's kingdom has come in terms of it's inaugurated. It's started. It's begun. It's formed a beachhead, much in the same way, and I've given this analogy in the past, World War II officially was over on D-Day. Officially over. All historians recognize that was the day World War II ended. People were still dying after D-Day. There's still a lot more deaths. There were still a lot more battles. There were still a lot more skirmishes going on. But that was the decisive battle that ended World War II. The cross, Mark's going to tell us, is the day in which... Jesus became king, established his kingdom, established his reign, and begun his new kingdom, spreading purposes throughout this world. All of this will be culminated one day when Jesus comes back again, but until then we sort of live kind of in this in-between stage between the inauguration of his kingdom in which it's spreading, it's been shed abroad in our hearts, uh, there's a mission that God's given to his church to go on to live the kingdom out in our lives, in our vocations, if you have a job. Uh, God's called you to be a missionary amongst your people that God's called you to. If you're a mom, God's called you to be a missionary to your little kiddos at park days. That's how God's called us to be missionaries, to live the gospel out until one day Jesus comes back again and inaugurates it in its fullness. So the point of the matter is that I would make is this, is that Mark keeps urging us to ask the question, what will it be like when God becomes king? And Mark keeps giving us, through the life of Jesus, all these object lessons what it will look like when God becomes king. All of the object lessons would include uh, little brief um, snapshots or episodes. For example, when Jesus heals somebody who has a disease, um, it's as if Jesus is saying, hey, when God becomes king, when I become king, disease won't reign, I will. Or when, for example, a storm comes, and it's great, and the unpredictable elements of nature, and how they're so destructive, and we feel powerless according to these things, as if what Jesus is saying is when God, become king, when God's, when God becomes king, when I become king, when I fully rule and reign, uh, the unpredictable forces of nature will have to be silenced before me, because I'm king. So Jesus can calm storms. Or Jesus would say... When I become king, when God, become, God, God becomes king, demonic forces will not have the final say. I will, because I can cast them out. When God becomes king, death won't be final. 
Because Jesus, throughout his life, there are these little episodes when Jesus will heal people, raise him from the dead. Ultimately, foreshadows of the ultimate resurrection with Jesus himself will be raised from the dead. So the question that Mark keeps wanting for us to ask is, what will life be like when God becomes king? So the episode that we're going to be looking at here today that we just read actually has to do with the subject matter of marriage and divorce. And it has to do with this. Now, this is not the subject matter that Jesus himself initiated. I mean, Jesus wasn't cruising around being like, guys, by the way, let's start talking about divorce. This, we're told, according to Mark, this was basically foisted upon Jesus. All right? We, we just saw that. So what we're told in the storyline is that Mark tells us that the Pharisees came to Jesus, and they cornered Jesus, and they basically forced Jesus to answer the question about divorce. Now, we get a little bit of a clue as to their intentions, why they uh, caused Jesus or forced Jesus to answer this question. But because Jesus is the king, because Jesus, everything he as the king says, is always going to be said from the angle of, this is what it's like when God becomes king. He's going to answer this question in the same way as if God were to become king. What would it look like if God were to become king? What does it look like now? What are the forces that are at work right now, the forces of sin, the forces of evil, the forces of anti-creation that are at work right now presently amongst this age? Well, they look like divorce. They look like cynicism. They look like anger. They look like bitterness. But when God becomes king, these lose their stranglehold. They don't have the power. They don't have the authority over people the way that they once had. So one of the reasons why I said earlier, Jesus is going to deal with the issue of the heart. He's going to say the real problem is hardness of the heart. In short, I'd put it this way. When God becomes king, just like sickness will be cast out, just like death will be overcome, just like demons will not have a place, just like the unpredictable, unpredictable forces of nature will be put under submission, under Christ, when God becomes king, Hardened hearts will ultimately be transformed. That's the message of this king. That's the message of what Jesus is trying to convey and communicate through this storyline. He addresses the issue. The real problem behind divorce is something that most people don't ever want to identify, but it's issue having to do with sin and hardness of heart. So with that being said, Jesus is going to begin to talk to us about what it's like. So I want you to think of the addressing of this issue of divorce and remarriage in the context of what will it be like when God becomes king? What will it look like? Will the typical type of attitudes that rule our day, in terms of this big question, still be ruling and reigning? Or will it look different? And this is what Mark wants us to see, that Jesus is communicating that when he becomes king, when God becomes king, there will be a new attitude that will rule the heart. Rather than being governed by hardness of heart, cynicism, and overprotectiveness, a sense in which closes other people out, that heart will be transformed. That's the message that Jesus wants for us to hear. So with that, I want to begin to take a look at basically three things. The first of which I'll take a look at, really, Jesus will teach us, is the story of creation. And then we'll take a look at Jesus teaching us the story of the fall. In other words, asking or addressing the question, what went wrong? And then finally, we'll be taking a look at the question or the issue of Jesus teaching us the story of new creation. In other words, how will all this brokenness in this world be fixed? So with that being said, I'm going to jump in to take a look at the first issue, which is the story of creation. Or you can ask the question, what was God's original design for marriage? Now, again, the story picks up um, in uh, you know, Gospel Mark chapter 10. And we're told that these religious leaders, they came to Jesus, and they wanted to test him. And so they were asking Jesus these questions. Now, just a little bit of a clue that I want to kind of give you guys a little bit of the, the, the stage or the context here, um, is that we're told in Mark chapter 10 that this whole scenario takes place in the region called Judea. All right, this is the Judean wilderness. Um, this, by the way, happened to be the exact same area that um, John the Baptist did his ministry from, by the Jordan. Now, if you can remember, just a few months prior in Jesus' ministry, uh, John the Baptist said something that ended up getting him in trouble. You guys remember that? Remember what John the Baptist said that got him in trouble? Does anybody remember? What did John say? Nobody? All right, because I like you guys, I'll tell you, or those of you are just embarrassed. That's all right. Uh, he basically condemned Herod Antipas for divorce. He's like, you shouldn't do that. That's bad. You are a bad king. Like, you shouldn't do that. And as a result, uh, John the Baptist got killed. Okay, so 
back in the story, these religious leaders are asking Jesus a question. Is it okay to divorce? And we're told in Mark that they're doing this to test Jesus. Their question isn't legitimate. It's not genuine. They're not asking this question like, Jesus, we love you. and We want to know how to live righteously. And what should we do about divorce? All right. They're like, Jesus, we want you to say, oh yeah, all divorce categorically, unilaterally is always wicked. And anybody who does it should be burned. They, they want Jesus to say that so that immediately uh, they'll call the authorities and have Jesus arrested. And they're hoping that the exact same fate that happened to John the Baptist would also likely happen to Jesus. See what I'm saying? But Jesus outsmarts them, all right? Jesus knows what they're up to. He's very smart, very wise. So what he does, he realizes that the religious leaders have two things that they value, two ultimate things that they value, all right? First thing that they value is the Torah. They love the Torah. They live their lives according to the Torah. The second thing they all value is they all value equally uh, the death of Jesus. That's two things that like, they all agree on. We all agree the Torah is God's word. We all agree, secondarily, Jesus must die, all right? So Jesus is like, okay, I know you guys want me to die, but let's, let me appeal to your argument, your question about divorce. I'll play with you on the question, but here's my question back to you. What does Moses have to say? Jesus is so smart. Like, he's like, you guys want to know my opinion? All right, my opinion is what Moses has to say. So they're trapped. Like, they can't do anything at all against Jesus because if they're like, we don't like that opinion, then they're basically condemning themselves because they would be, in essence, saying, we love Moses, but we disbelieve Moses. Like, they wouldn't do that. So Jesus kind of has them trapped. So here's what happens. Jesus, in verse 6, he says, he goes back to Genesis, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and he says this, but from the beginning of creation, God made the male and female. Therefore, man shall leave the father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so that no longer two, but one flesh, so that therefore what God has joined together, let no man separate. So here's what Jesus says from the very beginning. God's original design, God's original intention was that male and female would be united. Two unlikely candidates, two very distinct people, one male, one female. One thinks one way, one feels another way, right? They're different, very different, all right? They're radically different. They have different ways of seeing things. They speak different languages. They are radically different. But Jesus says from the very beginning, God's original plan was, would be for these two radically different entities to overlap, to merge, to become one. Just like one day, heaven and earth will become one, and immaterial and material will become one, and spirit and soul will become one. Jesus is saying is that from the very beginning, God's original design would be for these two radically uniquely different things to be brought together as one. It was his design from the very beginning. It was his desire. And yet, obviously, we live in a world where we realize that's not the way things are. And so that as human beings, as God created marriage, he created marriage so that man and woman would be united together as one, not just sexually, but emotionally and spiritually. And that this bond would sort of form together and there'd be beauty and harmony and just wonder. It would be something wonderful about it. But see, here's an example, and I'll get more to this in a second. But what we have and what we see in our culture today is we see people wanting to basically separate these things. We see, in essence, the forces of anti-creation at work. Anytime someone says, I don't want marriage. I don't want this unity of body, soul, and spirit united together, joined together. We want to separate them and make them distinct and take just one element and not engage in the other element. What we see is we see a breakdown from the creator's original design, all right? C.S. Lewis actually says this best. I'm going to read a quote to you because in one of his little lectures on the Christian marriage, he says this, He's talking about God being the inventor of the human machine. Here's what he says. The inventor of the human machine was telling us that the male and the female were made to be combined together in pairs. Not simply on a sexual level, 
but totally combined. The monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from the other kinds of union which are intended to go along with it. Christian attitude does not mean that there is anything wrong with sexual pleasure any more than there is, uh, any more there is about the pleasure of eating. It means that you must not isolate the pleasure and try to get it by itself any more than you ought to try to get the pleasures of taste without swallowing, digesting, by chewing things and then spitting them out again. His analogy basically is this. Sex, it's a good gift from God. But sex was a gift given by God intended to be in the bonds of marriage, in the bonds of covenant, in the bonds of not just sexual unity, but emotional unity and spiritual unity. But here's the way our culture works, is we say, I want friends with benefits. I don't want the relational element. I don't want the covenantal element. I just want sex. So we have a culture in which sex is the norm of the day. I mean, this isn't anything new, to be honest with you, in terms of our culture, unique with our culture. Sex has been part of the day all around us. But today, we've made sex very accessible and very available. That's why you can be on Facebook, and there's a little ad advertising houses, and it has a picture of a semi-naked lady on there because sex sells. I mean, typically you'd be like, what does a half-naked lady have to do with a house? Well, everything because everybody knows naked women sell houses, right? The point of the matter is that it has nothing to do with it, although sex sells. It draws us in, grabs our attention. We have this mentality that we want sex, but we don't want the relational elements of it. And when that gets done, when that is done like that, and that becomes the norm of our lives, there's breakdown. There's pain. Let me be as simple to try to describe this for you as I can. When we do that, this is why there's a feeling of defilement. There's a feeling of brokenness. I was watching a movie the other day. Uh, There's a bad scene in it of a gal being raped. And at the end of it, she goes into to just wash herself. They didn't show anything. It's all implied. She's washing her body because inside she feels very unclean. Something has happened to her that was horrific, and she wants to wash it out. But she can't wash it out because it's not physical. It's something deeper. This is why when we violate the Creator's good intentions, we end up breaking ourselves or breaking somebody else. So what God is basically saying is from the beginning, His intention was that two people, male and female, would be brought together, and in this unity of sexuality and emotionality, I'm not even sure if that's a word, or spirituality, all three of these things would be combined together and form bliss, beauty, symmetry, harmony. This was God's design. But when we break that down and we start divorcing those things or breaking those things away, for example, in a relationship where a guy who says, I just want physically a sexual relationship with a girl, but does not want to take her hand in marriage. Let me just say this to you real quick. Ladies, if you're here and you have that guy as your boyfriend and he refuses to take your hand in marriage, I say this to you as a father of two daughters. That is not the right guy for you. He loves your body. He doesn't love your soul. When what you truly want is you want somebody to love you. He doesn't love you. He loves your body. He doesn't love you. He may say he loves you, but as long as he continues to take from you physically your sexual, your sexuality and uses it by indulging it in upon himself and refuses to take your hand for lifelong commitment or refuses to uh, suppress taking something that does not yet belong to him, he's using you for his own gratuitous satisfaction. That's why after every time you guys have sex, you feel filthy. That's why he refuses to change the direction of that because he really, truly doesn't care about your heart. If he fully cared about your heart, he would not keep indulging in that. You need to think about that relationship. Is that the best that God has for you? Because God says from the beginning, his intentions, his desires, was that sex would be this unity, this coming together. It would be a whole package of sex, relationship, intimacy, and spirituality all together. And when we divorce those things, we see the natural breakdown. Anti-creation at work, breaking things down. Okay? I know that was heavy. We're going to move on to the next point. The second thing is this, is that Jesus will teach that really the story of the fall. And in other words, it's the question of what's gone wrong. Because I've already touched on it. 
something's gone wrong. We see in this world that something has gone wrong. We don't like what's gone, gone wrong. Sometimes we play into what's gone wrong. We try to disassociate from what's gone wrong. But what's happened is that rather, we don't have, we're powerless to somehow do anything about it. But we know that something in this world has gone wrong. Okay? So what we really want to try to focus on now is this element which Jesus is going to pinpoint because he begins to talk about it in verses 2 through 5. And again, it begins with a question from the Pharisees. When they came to Jesus, they asked him a question to test him. We've already looked at that, what they were really trying to do in terms of their intentions. And then they said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And then he answered them. Again, Moses, what did Moses command you? And then Moses allowed for a man to write a certificate of divorce to send her away. And then basically Jesus is affirming, yes, it's exactly what Moses said. Now, interestingly enough, touch on this very quickly, uh, giving a woman a bill of certificate actually was, uh, was a step up than what the cultural norm was. In that ancient Middle Eastern male-dominated culture, uh, a man typically would just walk away from a woman. Not have any type of, uh, not give her any certificate, not have, give her anything at all. Just walk away from her. Now, in a male-dominated culture and society where a woman was expected to have lots of kids and her whole entire identity was based upon how many children she had, if your male walked away from you and you had nothing, you're the most vulnerable of all people. God says, through Moses, make sure at least she's given a bill of divorcement. This is God's way of basically giving dignity and value and respect to a woman who otherwise in that culture has none. So Jesus says, it's true. Moses did say, give a bill of divorcement. But Jesus goes on and begins to put his finger upon the underlying root cause, the issue. And he says, it's because of hardness of heart that Moses had to give this. In other words, the problem is not with God's ideal. It's not with God's original creation. And the problem is not even with the legislation, meaning the law that Moses gave. The real problem is with the heart of mankind. We take things that don't belong to us. We exploit others' weaknesses to make ourselves feel stronger. And when that happens repeatedly over time, let me, let me try to put it this way. Sin at its very root core takes us away from God. By moving away from God, we move away from life. By moving away from God and life, we're actually becoming less human. This is why people who emotionally engage in sex are like zombies. They have no more feeling. They can do it callously. Or people who become serial murderers, serial rapists, they don't even hear the cries of, of crying for mercy. They don't even hear these cries anymore. It's because at some point they've crossed a barrier, a line, where what sin is doing to them, it's dehumanizing them. That's what sin does. Sin dehumanizes us. Sin is an attempt to somehow erase and to remove the image of God in each one of us. But that image is indelible, and it can't be taken out. It can be smudged. It can be covered. It can be glossed over, but that image is still there. That's why as far away from God that we tend to run and as far into sin that we tend to get, we still feel a sense that we want to be made right. We still feel and desire to want to be clean. We still long for some form of paradise, some form of wholeness, some form of purity, some form of cleanness. It's one of the reasons why I think, honestly, we love movies or stories that have uh, you know, happy endings, or we like songs or music that somehow makes us feel better, because honestly, at the end of the day, we realize that if if this is not, if, my, if the story of my life is not going to have a happy ending or the story of my life is not going to have some sort of redemptive good quality, then I'll find somebody else's storyline and I'll attach myself to that. Be it a movie, be it a song, honestly, be it a vampire diary. I don't care. Like, choose your desire. It doesn't matter what it is. We just want to somehow get into a story that ends happily and there's some form of love in it. Because we realize in this world, perhaps in our lives, that's not us. Jesus says the real issue, at the end of the day, 
is we become numb because of hardness of heart. That usually happens on a very natural level. I mean, think about it this way. When someone sins against you, when someone takes advantage of you, if you give yourself away to someone, that's what marriage is. You give yourself away with the hopes, anticipations, the aspirations that they will love you and they will treat your heart with tenderness and kindness and respect and they will give back to you the same type of devoted love that you are attempting to give to them and you hope for that, you long for that, you desire that, but if that person, by you giving them your heart, takes your heart and steps on it, doesn't treat it with dignity, doesn't treat it with value or devalues your heart, you feel the natural reaction is to pull back, to recoil, put up walls, build calluses, protect yourself, and that's exactly what Jesus says is hardness of heart. Forgiveness becomes less likely. Seeing good in other people becomes non-existent. Feeling joy doesn't happen. It's hardness of heart. And so Jesus says, hardness of heart is a part of the story of this world. The story of the world that I'm creating is one where cynicism is transformed in childlike faith, where hardness of heart is changed into joyfulness. The story that Jesus is saying, I'm bringing, or to put it this way, when God becomes king, he will undo all of those myths and lies and realities that we experience in this world. That's what he's doing. This is why Jesus will say things like, or even do things, whether in his words or his works, by taking people that have sickness and illness and disease and cure them. Or, like I said earlier, take the ravages of untamed nature and command it to stop and it will listen. Jesus is doing the same thing in this object lesson as he's done with people that were sick, as he's done with storms that were raging, as he's done with demon-possessed people. Now he's doing it with the heart that has gone hard. He's saying, when my king comes, when my kingdom comes, when God becomes king, God will take the root causal issue of the cynicism and the bitterness and the malice and the covetousness and the jealousy and the insecurities that plague this world and oppress us like taskmasters. He will do away with those things and he will take the hardness of our heart and transform us into like the faith of a child. Do you believe that? Do you want to believe that? Is that something that you desire? My guess is that's something we all want. And this leads to the very last thing, and I'm done. It's this really last thing that Jesus is going to point out is the story of creation and how will brokenness be ultimately fixed. And it's really this issue that Jesus is going to go back to. And again, like I said earlier, Mark is telling us the story of the life of Jesus and he doesn't want to in any way recognize the fact that there are not circumstances in which divorce is needed or allowed. In fact, the Bible is going to describe divorce, or I should say C.S. Lewis actually describes divorce, um, again, in that article that I just read or referred to, as like an amputation. And I want to just read you another thing from C.S. Lewis, and I'll go on and finish up the next point, is this, is he says, all regard divorce as something like having both your legs cut off and not like dissolving a business partnership. What we, or what they all uh, disagree with, I think it's actually supposed to say, what they all agree with is that the modern view that is a simple readjustment of partners to be made whatever, whenever people feel like they are no longer in love with another or when either of them falls in love with someone else. And his point is basically saying everyone agrees that there's no divorce that's simply easy. All divorce is painful. All divorce is hard because all divorce involves someone being sinned against or both parties being sinned against and someone being hardened, maybe not wanting to forgive, maybe wanting to protect themselves, not wanting to allow other people in. The problem that oftentimes comes when we build walls in our hearts to protect the pain from coming in is that we also isolate ourselves from allowing love to come in as well. And Jesus is saying is that when God becomes king, 
those barriers that we set up to protect us have the potential to be shattered and to be brought down. That's what he's saying. And Mark, again, like I said, is really causing us to see the whole stream, the whole nature, the whole place, the whole way in which the story is going, is that Jesus, in this story, is going to fix it. And again, the question that Mark wants us to keep asking is how? How will Jesus fix it? How will God, once he becomes king, how will he undo the evils in this world? How will he reverse the cynicism in the ego, in the arrogance, in the attitude that says, me over them, me instead of them, me in place of them. How will God do this? How will, we, how will he undo the wickedness and the evil? And then our natural reaction against that, which is protection, cynicism, hardness of heart. How will he undo this? So Mark keeps wanting us to ask. By the time you get to the end of the gospel, Mark, you begin to see that what happens is that Jesus' whole focus throughout his whole life is heading to a cross. Everything in Jesus' life will ultimately climax on the cross. In Jeremiah chapter 3, there's an interesting verse where God is frustrated with his people. In fact, there's a tendency for the church to sort of view people that have been divorced as somehow being worse sinners than others. And the church has not done, in my opinion, the greatest of job of loving and showing grace and kindness to those people that have been sinned against, those that have been offended, those that have engaged in various forms of divorce, and so on and so forth. But the interesting thing is if you, ha- if you have this attitude of arrogance towards divorcees, you should be careful because Jeremiah chapter 3 tells us of an incident when God himself says regarding his wife, Israel, he says, Israel, my wife, has gone out whoring herself time and time and time again. She acts like a prostitute. And God is referring to the many times in which Israel has gone out and worshipped false gods. And God says in Jeremiah chapter 3, I will divorce her. God divorce, claims to divorce his own people. Now, we know that God in the next few verses says, I'm calling you to come back to me. I'm calling you to repent. But when you follow the life of Jesus, and then you begin to see who Jesus is claiming he is, and what Jesus is claiming to do in terms of his vocation, Jesus comes on the scene and says, my job, my role, is to take the place of sinful, shameful Israel. On the cross, what you see is the only one who has ever been worthy of receiving this unbelievably poured out, commitment formed type of love that comes only from God, the only one worthy of it. And on the cross, if you will, Jesus himself is banished from the Father. Jesus himself is cut off from the Father. Jesus is divorced from his own Father. Why? Because Jesus, we're told, is taking the place of people who deserve to be cut off. We deserve to be cut off. We have sinned against God. We have done something horrific. We have not only sinned, but in doing so, we have hardened ourselves by sin. We have become disillusioned by our sin. But to the degree that you see what Jesus did for you on the cross, that has the potential of doing something to you to change you. To the degree that you see that God did by sending his son for you because he loves you, that has the ability of dissolving your animosity, dissolving your bitterness, taking your cynicism and transforming it into childlike faith that has the ability to do that. To the degree that you see that God did this for you, you will be changed. Look, at the end of the day, every single one of us desire, wish, long for. We want somebody to just love us completely. No strings attached, right? And the reality is, is that many of us, any hint or any whisper of that or any scent of that in anybody, we throw ourselves entirely at that person. We give our hearts to them and we hope that somehow that 
that little hint, that little whisper of them saying, I love you. We're like, oh, I will give myself everything away to you. Then at some point, that person will let you down because they're not God. They can't sacrifice for you. They won't sacrifice for you. They won't spill their blood for you. So the question is oftentimes it arises in our mind, then who will? Who will give themselves to me? Who can love in such a way that there are no strings attached? Who can love in such a covenantal way that in spite of who I am, in spite of my sin, in spite of my flaws, in spite of my imperfections, in spite of the sin that is deep down resident in my heart that maybe nobody else knows about? All of us. If you get married, you'll know this at some point in a very physical way. This is going to be kind of weird for some of you. But the reality is, you will get married, and you will stand in front of your spouse naked. All right? Some of you are like, TMI. All right, just hear me out. <laughs> just hear me out. All of us have elements of our body that we are absolutely disgusted by and ashamed of and don't want anybody to see. But to be in the midst of somebody who says, I love you, regardless of what you look like, who you are, how you act, what you do, how you think. And I will give myself entirely, completely to you. It's heaven. It's unbelievable. And some of you might say, well, I've tried to do that in this world already, and it hasn't worked. That's my point. This world lives according to a story that's broken. Jesus is coming, and Mark is telling us the story that God has become king, and now that God's kingdom has come upon this earth and has begun to be inaugurated and has initiated, what we see in Christ is one who does love us, one who will give himself joyfully, gladly, sacrificially, entirely, entirely away for you. Regardless of who you are, regardless of your sin, regardless of your shame, regardless of those things that you don't want anybody else to see or know about you, he gives himself to you because he loves you because he loves you so those desires you have for that and have been trying to satisfy in alternative relationships in this world can be found in christ this is not a sentimentality it may change your hearts to where we become sentimental but this is about a covenantal love whereby god says I will give to you myself entirely. And that's exactly what we see in the life of Jesus. One of my favorite preachers, a guy by the name of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's a preacher out of England. He tells a story or an illustration in one of his sermons. It goes like this. He says, imagine if a friend came to me and said, I was at your house one day, and I paid one of the bills that came overdue. Uh, the doctor, they used to call him, they says, the, the doctor explains, he says, until I know the size of the debt, as to what my friend paid for me, I don't know whether to just thank him or, or what. I don't really know. Until I know what size of the debt it was, I'm not sure how to respond. Now, supposing the guy says, I paid for your past postage due. He says, I would probably thank him. But he says, if while I was away, the IRS creditors came after me, they were looking for that $50,000 that I owed in back taxes and been trying to run away from, if he paid that for me, he says, until I know the size of the debt that one paid for me, I don't know whether to shake their hand or fall on my face and kiss their feet. Until you know the size of debt that your God has paid for you, you won't be set free. But when you know what he paid for you, he'll set you free. He'll set you free. So rather than us being people looking for others to somehow leverage a debt out of them, expect a debt out of them to be paid or expect something to be delivered from them that they can't deliver. We can't fully love that person. Let me tell you how this works in a marriage. If you, as a married person, expect your spouse to give you infinite joy, to give you infinite peace, to always be there for you when your heart's hurting, to comfort you when you're sad, if you expect that person to do that, you have not just simply turn them from a husband or a wife, you have transformed them into God. They cannot deliver to you that. So at some point, they will let you down, you will become bitter, you will have an offense against them, and they will 
literally self-destruct themselves because you are putting upon them an oppressive yoke that they can't bear. But until you see that the love that God has given to you has been magnified, demonstrated through Jesus on the cross because he loves you, just because he loves you. To the degree that you believe that, to the degree that you give yourself to that, you'll be free. You'll be free to love your spouse in spite of their sinfulness, in spite of their wicked ways. Now, that doesn't mean you let them get away with sin because if they're getting away with sin, you want to help them. You don't want to let them keep getting away with sin. So you seek out accountability. But at the end of the day, to the degree that you see that Jesus has done this for you, then you'll be set free to love, to worship God, and to make all those other peripheral relationships just what they are, that it's just a daughter, or it's just a spouse, or it's just a boyfriend, not a God. I'm going to have the guys come on up, and we're going to finish with a song of worship, but I want to say this as they're coming up. I remember when I was, when I was young, my parents divorced, all right? I was, uh, I think, 12. And um, my mom had committed adultery on my dad, and she left, so I lived with my dad growing up. And that's all I had. I had a great dad. Loved my dad. Loved my mom, too. But there was a time in my life where I just began to think, I don't ever want to get married, ever. Because <laughs> I don't think a good marriage exists. I don't think it's possible. And I remember talking to other people, like, uh, you know, same cynical attitude that I had, too. And we were just kind of, like, formed this, like, band of cynical brothers. or like, it doesn't exist. Like, some of my other, bro- you know, my, my friends, and they're just like, all right, it, I know it doesn't exist, so we're just going to have as much sex as we can. So they take advantage of as many women as they can, knowing that it doesn't exist, so might as well just live it up and indulge as much as you can. And then I became a Christian and began to realize the problem with that thinking is that is the thinking of the story of this world. But if Jesus is God and God has become king, then he's changing the story so that the prevalent or prevailing story does not have to be one of anger and bitterness, frustration, malice, unforgiveness, spite, cynicism, infidelity. That doesn't have to be the prevailing story. Hardness of heart does not have to be what defines you. When God becomes king, he will take hardened hearts and soften them. So my question I want to finish with you is what story are you living in? Do you still live in the story that says good marriages are impossible? That's the story of this world. Do you live with the mentality that all men are wicked? Maybe true, but (laughs) that doesn't have to be true because Jesus can redeem. Are you of the story that says no relationship is forever? That's the story of this world. Jesus has come to set us free, to rule and reign as king, to establish a new story to swallow up the story of this world, to put it to death once and for all. That started on the cross. It will climax again when Jesus comes. What I want to do right now before we pray, before we worship and sing, I want to ask, if you're here and you're married, maybe getting married, I want to pray for you guys. It's tough. Maybe you've been divorced. If you feel comfortable standing up, it's fine. We want to pray for you too. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have all you guys stand up right now because I want to pray for you. I'm going to tell you why in a second. As you're standing up, I just want to tell you. Marriage is tough. There's a lot to become cynical over. But cynicism is what ultimately leads to hardened heart. And a hardened heart is not part of the kingdom that's to come. Jesus wants to deliver us. He wants to transform our hearts. I want to pray for all you. We're going to sing. If you're here this morning and you still have some other things that you need prayer for, I'm going to be up on the front here sitting on the steps. 
if others that lead community groups or would like to, you know, you prayer warriors, you got a gift of praying, you would like to pray, if you'd like to come up here and join me on these steps and just pray for anybody else that would like to be prayed for, you guys can just come on down while we're singing. We'll pray for you. But I want to pray for those of you right now that are standing. God, right now I just pray for all those that are married, that are getting married, that have gone through the painful painful, uh, dehumanizing, destructive world of divorce. All of those things, God, are a part of the story of this world. And Jesus, you came to redeem, to restore, to renew, to reestablish a new story, a story that comes from redemption, a story that comes and has to do with restoration, a story that has to do with recreation. That God who created all things, who called them good, and that sin that has come into this world that has destroyed that good, God, you've come to restore, redeem all that through the sacrifice that Jesus made for us on the cross. So I pray for my brothers and sisters, God, right now that have gone through various difficulties and hardships, uphold them, strengthen them. God, I pray for the marriages here, that you would make them strong, help the men to be good, solid leaders that point their spouse, their wife, to Jesus that the men here in this church would avoid those destructive elements in this world that bring about pain and defilement, things like pornography, things just like a wandering eye. God, all of those things that can destroy and harm. Lord, I pray for wholeness and covering and healing. Jesus, bring it today, we pray. Bring healing to those that have been broken. God, so as we finish up here right now, we want to be able to sing to you. We want to pray, desire, and wish, and long for your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Two very unlikely candidates, heaven and earth, things that we look at today and think they couldn't be more opposite. Except in your kingdom, God, you said that you will bring the two together. And you told us to pray that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. So, Lord, that's our prayer. We're going to finish singing. Like I said, if you'd like to be prayed for, you guys can come on up. If you would like to help me pray, if you lead a community group, you're involved in any form of leadership, just come on up and you can, guys can sit on the steps with me and we'll just kind of hang out up here. Pray for those of you that feel like you need prayer. But let's sing. Let's worship. Let's commit the rest of this time here to Jesus.